This is The Lydia Project, Conversations with Christian Women. Our name is inspired by the life-changing conversation that Lydia had with Paul, recorded in Acts 16. On this podcast, you'll hear from a variety of women whose lives have also been impacted by the truth of the gospel. Your hosts, Tori Walker and Taryn Hayes, hope that you too will be challenged and inspired by how the gospel truths are being worked out in the lives of their guests, ordinary women who serve an extraordinary God. Today, your host is Taryn Hayes. Welcome back to The Lydia Project. I'm Taryn Hayes. Today we're in for a treat because we are deviating a little bit from our podcast title. Yes, we are The Lydia Project Conversations with Christian Women, but today I'm going to be chatting to a Christian man. Yes, this particular man is relevant to us all here at The Lydia Project because he is the one that is behind The Wandering Bookseller, our partner in our book club. Carl Grice is the founder of The Wandering Bookseller, and today he's joining me to share about his own journey of faith and how The Wandering Bookseller came to be. Carl shares some poignant insights in our chat, and we get to learn lots more about the awesome work that he's doing through The Wandering Bookseller. Once again, our book club books this year are all available at thewanderingbookseller.com.au with a 15% discount. You just need to add the discount code LYDIA15, that's lydia one five to your checkout, and that'll automatically add 15% off the relevant books. But for now, let's hear from Carl Grice. Welcome, Carl, and lovely to finally meet you. Hi, thanks for having me. As we do with all our guests, we dive into the first question, which is, how did you come to faith? Yeah, I, I was raised in the Salvation Army. So my parents and my grandparents, actually, on both sides as well, were in the, involved in the Salvation Army. And uh, so grew up going to church. I, I don't know if this was the case for lots of people, but this is back in the 80s and sort of ended up spending most of Sunday at church. So often Sunday school would be before church and then we'd have church. Then sometimes there'd be a lunch afterwards and then there'd be discipleship things in the afternoon and band practice. And they used to have sort of extra prayer meeting at night that wasn't, there's was often the same people from the morning service, but there's a lot of, a lot of church on a Sunday, but I guess a lot of discipleship that was happening there for me as a kid. And, and of course, back at home, my parents would read the Bible every night and my dad would pray with us every night in bed. I have two brothers. So, so it's definitely raised with a very strong sort of emphasis on faith at home. And, and I think sort of just took that completely on board, I guess I didn't. So there were times later in life where I questioned some of that, but, but certainly at the time it just was, that was, that was how I saw the world. And, you know, I think the Salvation Army put a big emphasis on sort of repentance and, and forgiveness. And, and so uh, the sort of, I guess, in that sense, a clear understanding that if you, you know, if you're repentant, God through Jesus' death forgives you. There, there was a song we used to sing a lot that would that talk about the blood of Jesus, which <laughs> might sound a bit sort of gothic in some ways, but you know, it's, it's not. Right? And um, yeah, I guess that's, that's sort of the starting point, I suppose, for me. I just wanted to say like, what a, what a privilege and blessing it is to yeah. be raised in a way where your parents are so invested in, in helping you understand who Jesus is, which yeah. sounds awesome. And so that was childhood. How, how did things go from there? Then uh, sort of as I finished school, well, I guess I, I, 
I went off to study at uni. I started working in bookshops as well <laughs> around that time, but we'll come back to that. Went to study politics and law at Macquarie University, uh, ended up dropping the politics and discovered a really wonderful history department at Macquarie and uh, was able to study New Testament and other sort of early church era texts and some language as well, some, some Greek and Hebrew. And got, got really excited about that because it was a chance to, I guess, dive deeper into the Bible. But it also, I guess, it raised some questions for me as well that I wasn't expecting. And so as I, I, um, I traveled down from the Central Coast to uni for three years, and then when I was about 21, I moved down to Sydney, so I was closer to campus. And around that time, I just sort of started to realize that some of the ways I was reading the Bible didn't quite work anymore for me and that was really hard and I so I had a, quite a significant period of doubt so probably about six to nine months where it really rocked my world because I didn't because the bible had been so important for all my life up to that point and and when I had this moment of being unsure whether I trusted it anymore I, I didn't really know what to what to do with that I actually I'd had a, I'd had a minister ask me he said can you run a bible study group at your flat in Epping and I said uh, not really. <laughs> and he said, oh, why not? And I said, well, actually, at the moment, I'm not sure if I believe the Bible at the moment. And he thought that was a pretty good reason not to run a Bible study group. But I said to him, I said, look, I, I still want to go. I'd, I'd like to be in one. I'd like to keep coming to church. I said, I just don't. I'm just working through a lot. And so I think he was excited about that bit. And he gave me some good books to read. So I think it's sort of hard probably in a podcast to explain what I was wrestling with at the time. But I suppose some of it was just understanding genre like the, the bible i guess i always knew that the bible had different types of writing in it but i think i was still some of how i was reading it was quite quite flat sort of this expectation that sort of if you see a word in the bible it means the same thing every time you see that word and i'm starting to discover that actually you've got to you've got to read each part of the bible and have an understanding of what that part of the bible is about and who it's written for and yeah i don't know there's no there's no it wasn't an easy there weren't any easy answers there for me but it was just a it was quite a, quite a shift, I guess, for me in terms of realizing the Bible can be more complicated than it, than it first seems, but that's that's okay. Like it all still takes us to to Jesus, and and in a way, the the things about it that are hard to read sometimes, in in the end, gave me more confidence that it was true, uh, which wasn't wasn't what I expected at first. But as you see, that it can be messy at times. What what becomes really clear is that God is still the same through through all of that messiness. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So you say it took about six to nine months. Was it a slow, gradual progression of thought, or did you have some kind of aha moment or moments? Yeah, it was it was slow, but there were some aha moments. I guess people ended up coming to my flat still for Bible study. I wasn't running it, but there were people in my house, and it ended up being quite a special time because lots of them were were new Christians. There was a lovely lady from Beijing whose whose father was part of the CCP. So she'd been raised a passionate atheist and uh, she'd just become a Christian. There were a couple of people who had a Hindu background and they had just, just discovered Jesus for the first time. And there were just more, like almost everyone in that group was a new Christian. And I was sort of sitting there, you know, not sure what to say because I, I was at a different point where I was questioning everything. But for them, I could just see their lives being turned upside down by joy as, as they got to know Jesus. And not easy for them either, because often the families weren't as excited as they were about Jesus. So, yeah. so they were wrestling with that each week as well and how to have good conversations with their families. But my flatmate sort of said to me, he said, like, you can, you can see what's happening here. And I said, yeah, I can. He said, you're still excited about it. I was like, yeah, I am. And, and I think in, in a way, the aha moment was partly realizing that 
even as I try and work out some of the details of the Bible, that overarching sort of creation fall, sort of a curse and death, but then Jesus reversing that through his resurrection and, and then a new world, like all of that makes so much sense of the world we live in and, and sort of no, nothing else sort of does. So, <laughs> so I guess that's the, somebody shared a C.S. Lewis quote with me at the time about how, you know, I, I won't get the quote right here, but Christianity is like, it's a bit like the rising sun. Like you, you can see the sun, but it's also, you see the, you see everything else through the light of the sun. And I think that was what was happening for me. I was, I was sort of, I guess, reconnecting the overall message of the Bible with, with what was in front of me and the, and the people's lives that were being changed as they met Jesus. So, yeah. It must have been such an incredible pivotal moment for you. Did you feel that it gave the foundations of your faith some kind of greater cementing? Yeah. I think the, the questioning that I went through was going to happen at some point. And I think I'm just glad that sort of it was, it seemed like it was the right moment to have a crisis, I guess. The people, the people that were around me at the time were the right people. So, so God put good people in my life as I went through that. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody has to go and have a crisis, but you know, no, <laughs> but, but it happens. Yeah, it does. And it's not uncommon and it often happens in late teens or at uni level. And what a great blessing that you had people around you to help you to process all of this yeah and they're patient people i think if i had an have an encouragement is to if somebody in your life is going through a crisis to not rush them through it i suppose you can't always fast track that kind of thing yeah and you said about how your your pastor had been quite excited despite the fact that you you were going through a crisis and and had been patient with you and i think that's a great example yeah i think we especially for our loved ones we tend to panic when they have crisis of faith and we just think It'd be lost forever. And, and we worry, um, forgetting that God is sovereign. You have spoken a bit in our QA about having had other points in your life where you've had significant times of anger or bitterness, anxiety, repentance. Do you want to chat about that? I've I've written actually for TGC uh about anxiety. So and we can't talk a bit about that, but there was a there was a point in my life where I'd reached uh sort of more than anxiety, a point where I was quite, I guess, bitter. And yeah, it was, it was anxiety, but also bitterness to, to the point that I was, I ended up just going to bed one afternoon because I couldn't face the world sort of thing. And there was a context for it. And there were there's often external factors and things that were happening. But I was, I was married at the time and had a young, I've got four kids now, but my first, my eldest daughter was probably about, I think, two or three months old and spent the afternoon in bed. And my wife sort of kept saying to me, if you stay in bed all afternoon, you won't sleep tonight, which is probably true. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, why don't you just go to church tonight? And we didn't, at that point, we, you know, we were going to the church in the morning, not regularly going to church service at night. And, and I kept sort of resisting that and just deciding to stay in, in bed. But sort of right at the last minute, sort of there's one more encouragement, <laughs> just persistence and um, to, to maybe just try going to church to see if that helped. And I actually visited not my own church that night. There was a guest speaker in town who was speaking at a, a different church. Uh, look, to be honest, it, was, it wasn't it was necessarily a, it was a church that had an unusual reputation in town, but I'd been invited to go and hear this guy speak. In a sense, I think I was expecting to sort of reinforce my bitterness. Sometimes you just want to almost like wallow in, in sadness. <laughs> sometimes it's okay to sit with sadness but I think sometimes I almost relish it too much and, and I think as much as anything I thought I'll just go along and I won't go to enjoy this I'll, I'll go to sort of reinforce my own negative emotions anyway I was expecting things to be a little bit unusual a little bit 
a little bit wacky. It was, but not the way I expected. Uh, two, two guys got up and read poetry they'd written, which wasn't what I expected, but also wasn't the kind of wacky I was expecting either. And then the guest preacher spoke and he spoke about how we're adopted by God, we're as God's children. And I guess it was a it was a talk that was really emphasizing God's love for us, our assurance in that. But somewhere along there, I during that talk, I, I really felt this conviction that at, at that point I, I needed to recognize that my bitterness was was a consequence of my own sin and you know anxiety can be for a number of reasons and I don't think anxiety is always like sometimes anxiety can come from sin sometimes it can just be biological sometimes it can be there's lots of different causes for anxiety but but in that particular moment in that particular season my anxiety was a result of me not trusting God and my bitterness was a result of me not trusting God and I felt grief at that. And so I just on my own in the church sitting there, I asked, asked God to forgive me for that. And in my head, I knew, I, I knew that if you ask for forgiveness, you're forgiven. But I think at that moment, I was really feeling the grief and conviction of sin in my heart. It was an emotional thing. And they actually invited people to be prayed with at the, at the front of the church, which is something, I think it's the only time I've ever done that. <laughs> it's something that um, was common in, in the Salvation Army when I was a kid, but I never, I never did that. And a guy who was working with me came and sat next to me. He said, do you want to go and have someone pray with you? And, and I don't think I would have if he hadn't come and sat next to me and asked me at that moment. And so a couple of people, including the man who was preaching, prayed with me and sort of asked what, what I wanted to pray for. And I told them that I was, you know, wanting forgiveness for my for my bitterness so they they prayed for that but just sort of said you know god's already forgiven you you know that and i guess it's sort of a little bit hard to explain what happened next but basically i had this time where i i was just quite overwhelmed with god's love for me and all i wanted to do was thank him for his his forgiveness and it's not it's not always easy to put into words what happened that night but i i think there was this this there was a lifting of my I guess sorrow, which I think was God intervening at that point quite quite directly. And you know, it's not it's not something that's happened for me since. And it's not I've been anxious since I try to avoid avoid being bitter. But um, you know, like it's not it hasn't cured me of all my sin in that sense. But I I do know that I'm forgiven. And I think that particular night I really had this sense that, you know, God God has adopted me as his child or something. And it, I think my wife said that I didn't stop grinning after I got home for about a week and a half after that. So I think she was a bit nervous at first that maybe this was just a, you know, this was another up and down roller coaster emotion for me, but I think it was a special night and yeah, but like I say, it didn't, didn't cure me of all, all anxiety forevermore or anything, but I think there's something that night about, there was a, there was a writer who once talked about the importance of not just knowing what repentance means, but, but experiencing repentance. Thing. So you can, I could explain to someone, this is what repentance is, this is what forgiveness is. But I think that particular night, for me, it went beyond being able to explain repentance, but actually there was a deep repentance in my heart where I, I recognized that I wasn't trusting God and I felt reassured by God that I was, I was forgiven. So, yeah. I'm really encouraged by that story, Carl, for lots of reasons. One of them being that, you know, in our reformed evangelical circles, we can be a little bit suspicious of emotion. <laughs> And yet God uses that in so many ways. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, how often do we in our human relationships have those sort of experiences with our relationships with people we love around us where, you know, we've wronged them terribly and we feel that great sense of remorse and sorrow and we repent, we ask for forgiveness and, you know, all that comes with it. Why not would God do that for us as well when we, when we bring ourselves to him and it shouldn't be a surprise it shouldn't be something that we are suspicious of or wary of. And I'm glad you got to experience that and to share that with us because how good it is. It actually just reminds me of 
the book that we've read earlier last year, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, just going to those areas that we as more cerebral Christians <laughs> in terms of the, the way we viewed is good. It's so good for us to do. And I can imagine that's probably stood you in good stead during COVID when there's been much to be anxious about. And actually, I'd love to talk to you about your article and we'll go there now before I ask you other things. But you wrote a really great article for the Gospel Coalition. And one of the main points being that life can suck <laughs> and God is good. And those things can be held in tension with each other. I'd love you to unpack that. What what led you to write that article? And I got sick, something like the flu. It was at that point where you couldn't get tested. I don't know if you're, it feels like forever ago now, but I got sick. I knew I had to stay home. I couldn't go to work, but I also wasn't eligible for a PCR test. And, you know, there, there weren't lots of options, you know, one option is to watch Netflix. But I, I read Chris Cipollone's book on anxiety, book Down, Not Out, and ended up yeah writing about that. And, and I think it's, it's one of my favorite books, actually. Chris is an Aussie, uh, he's, he's in Sydney. And he, he talks about seeing a therapist who emphasizes that if you say, as an example, if you say that it's, you know, it's sunny, but I feel low, you're sort of undermining the beauty of the sunny day. Whereas if you can say it's sunny and I'm feeling really low today, you're not diminishing the fact that the, the sunshine is still good. And, and sort of the same thing with the gospel and, and with Christianity is that and, and with God, we can, we can have hope in God and we can feel hopeless at the same time. And his therapist was encouraging him to say, and rather than, but sort of thing, right? Rather than saying the gospel gives me hope, but I feel hopeless. If you can just change that word to, and I guess it's acknowledging that the emotion is real, but the truth and the reality of our hope isn't diminished by the, the emotion we feel. That is super helpful. I, I like that you've, you use the word diminish because I guess that's what it, what it is when we say, but. God is good, but it does diminish who he is. And it also helps us to keep ourselves in the right place as well, because it doesn't matter ultimately what happens to us here on this planet. Even the most awful things, God is still God and he's still in control and he still loves us. And we, we could almost flip it the other way and say, I feel low and I have hope because because we don't want to diminish our feelings either. Like they're, they're real. So if you feel low, then that's, yeah. that is how you feel. It, it might not match the reality, but it's still, the feeling is still real. Yeah. And it might take time to work through that feeling. And, and there are reasons to feel low as well, because, you know, we've had a pandemic, you know, there are, there are things to be sad about too. Yeah. Yeah. There's plenty to be sad about. And we see this reflected in the Psalms with, you know, the amount of times that David cried out to the Lord about the atrocities that were happening around him. And I think we, in this time with COVID, can yes. can really reflect on those and see a lot of what's going on around us. You know, why, Lord, how long, how long are wicked people going to carry on? And yeah, it's been it's been on my heart quite a lot as well with the pandemic, and you know, wondering how on earth we're going to come out of all of this. There's moments where it just feels like we've we've reached the end of it. You know, it's like I think July last year, I thought this is it. We're out of lockdown. It's all finished. And then it wasn't. And and even this. Even now, you know, lockdowns have kind of finished, but actually now everybody's getting sick. Yeah, sort of a, does feel a bit never ending. <laughs> it's a bit of an emotional seesaw, like the one you know, you read a piece of news that's really positive, and then you you know turn the page, and then it's oh my goodness, I can't believe this decision has been made, and and how it impacts people. And but I, I was saying to my daughter yesterday as we were discussing all of this and the, the heaviness of it all, 
and going, we're experiencing this kind of thing for the first time really as Western Christians, whereas in our lifetime, other Christians who live in other parts of the world where there isn't the kind of freedom we've experienced have experienced great hardship, far greater than, than even what we're experiencing now, and yet they still trust and we can trust you, right? you know, just because we haven't experienced anything particularly you know, on a, on a global or a national level that has impacted everybody in the way that it has doesn't mean that it's unique. You know, it's happened to other people as well. Yeah. You mentioned you married, you got four kids. Uh, my wife, I met at uni. So we were studying at the same uni and were involved in the Christian group there and tutoring on study camps and things like that. And then we moved from Sydney out to Orange, which was Naomi's hometown. We lived in Orange for about eight years and we had a couple of kids while we were in Orange and then we've had a couple more since we moved to the Blue Mountains. Um, so we spent now eight years in the Blue Mountains, just sort of like the hinterland of Sydney. I don't know. I don't know where listeners are all based in Australia, but, and so, yeah, so four kids aged from 12 down to 18 months um, and they're all different. Uh, I, I keep being amazed at how different they are to each other. You know, I guess you see different bits of parents in their kids. And so there are things in them that I can sort of, you know, I see myself in parts of them and Naomi in parts of them, but but they're all just their own unique persons, I guess, as well, which um, I, I still, I think it just fills me with amazement. Like it's, um, you know, have little conversations because uh, there's a lot of energy in the house. So there's not, oh, yes. not much sleep these days. And yeah. Especially with an 18 month old in the mix. Yeah. <laughs> yeah very yeah. much so well that's awesome and you guys or you've been involved with the wandering bookseller how did you come to be the wandering bookseller a good question the easy answer might be providence um, it definitely wasn't my plan uh, i i had been involved in bookselling since i finished high school uh, so as i studied i i worked in bookshops um, part-time and so and that was all general book selling so you know angus and robertson and independent bookshops not not selling christian books and even when I moved to Orange, I picked up a job at a bookshop in Orange. So sort of finished uni, said to my wife, there's a job going at a bookshop. She said, just, just go for it. Like if, if that's what you enjoy, just do it. And then at some point, somebody tapped me on the shoulder and said, there's a, there's a job going to sort of manage a Christian bookshop and sell Christian books. I would really like you to do that. So I had to go at that for a few years. And somehow out of that, I ended up selling books at the Katoomba conventions and eventually we, we made the call to move up to uh, Katoomba and make that what, what we do is sell books at conferences. Um, and then things happened really fast after that. So we, so we moved to the mountains and just through word of mouth, we were invited to sell books at more and more events. And that's sort of how the Wandering Bookseller started, I guess. We, we wandered beyond Katoomba to lots of other places and ended up with uh, staff in different states which again wasn't really not, none of this I, I don't I can't claim credit for for any of these ideas in the sense that I think a lot of it just sort of happened we were selling books at a national training event conference and, and a young guy came up to me and said you know we need we need something like the wandering bookseller in Queensland I said oh really <laughs> and he was from Brisbane and um and I, I chatted to a few people that knew him got a bit of you know street cred and sort of said to them well do you want to do it and so he did and so he's still doing that for us now and working sort of part-time with city bible forum and 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 doing some part-time event work for us and and that's i guess that's how it's unfolded <laughs> i think i had been to a lot of conferences over the years and i bought books at conferences before i was selling books at conferences and 
you know, there's been a couple of few books over the years that have really shaped how I think about things. So it seemed like a worthwhile thing to do, but it wasn't, it was never a, this is what I should do with my life kind of thing. Um, initially, it sort of just happened first. And I went, oh, this is, this is probably a good idea. <laughs> that seems to be the story for so many people that I know that God has just directed them along this path that just incidentally seemed to happen without it being their plan. And I think that's great. I think it's exciting. And I'm very appreciative of what the Wondering Bookseller does. In fact, I first came across it. Oh, I was had been in the country for maybe two months and I went to uh, I went to the Grow Women's Conference and there was all these books being sold and that was great. And it was called The Wondering Bookseller. And I was like, oh, what's this? <laughs> and that's how I came across you guys for the first time. But what I was really struck by was the books that were being sold were just solid books. And then, you know, coming across your website and looking at what you had available and going, oh, it's so good to find something just because, you know, I knew that I was going to get solid books and not wade into some very dodgy theology. <laughs> I actually really enjoyed being able to plug the Wondering Bookseller and get books from you guys. And your prices are often a lot better sometimes, which is also good. I'm one of those people that, you know, has the three windows open and doing book book pricing because as a homeschool mom, I've had to do that for years and years and years and years. So it's not like second nature. And I'm like, ah, oh, Wondering Bookseller wins it again. <laughs> yeah. We, I, I didn't, I didn't know you were homeschool mom, but we, we homeschool too. So. <laughs> ah, awesome. Actually, I think I do remember reading that. So have you always done that or has COVID uh, forced you into it? It was before COVID. Uh, we did, Elsie went to school for two years and then, and then we started homeschooling after that. So the other kids have been homeschooled sort of all the way so far. Okay. And, yeah. What convinced you to make the move? Uh, I think my wife uh, worked as a primary school teacher. And so she had, I think, I think it was always an idea in the back of her mind that maybe that's what we would do is homeschool. Um, and I think we, when we, when Elsie first went to school, we just moved to the Blue Mountains. And so I, at the time I thought, oh, this might be just a bit much with all the other changes going on. But once we settled sort of two years in, I thought we'd give it a go and yeah, sort of haven't, that's just been really good for us. I think it's been hard as well in, in ways. It's not, it's hard work, yeah. but it's, um, the kids are really enjoying it. So yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. I mean, just like with anything, it has its pros and cons. And I often say to people, you know, mainstream schooling has wonderful pros that homeschooling can't offer, but it also has cons. And, you know, you've got to roll with what you've got or what decision you finally make. And for us, it was my kids never went to school because I was a high school teacher. So I knew what was coming down the line <laughs> and went, oh, I'm not so sure I want my kids to do that. But really, it was the, I've, I've said this before, it was all the pull factors towards homeschooling that ultimately helped us to make the choice because it's such a wonderful lifestyle to have as a family. And you know, you will know, yes. kids can learn at their own pace to yeah. a, a point you can be quite flexible and there's a lot of freedom, which is awesome. And then obviously you get to teach your kids in an environment that's saturated with the word. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important, especially in our culture that we live in today where our children are getting some heavy indoctrination in worldly thinking. So I'm on the other end. I have two graduated and two in high school. So it's crazy. It was yesterday that I had an 18-month-old. Yeah, wow. Nuts. <laughs> yeah, it moves fast. So what would you say is big on your radar at the moment? Yeah, I think one of the things that's, that's popped up during all the lockdowns is that, you know, the importance of friendship. And while 
so we have a we have a retail store in Katoomba as well as traveling to events and so this the shop had long periods where we couldn't have customers inside the shop but we could meet them at the front door and what what I particularly noticed during the lockdowns were that people would come to the door to ask about a book or look at a, you know look at a book buy a book but for many of those people in Katoomba that was one of the few chances they had to talk to someone because if they're working from home or like to actually talk to someone face to face that was one of the rare places you could do that uh, and even you know with the churches closed we had people coming we had a lady coming to the bookshop asking to to pray with us uh, which was which was lovely um, and I think what I realized was that there are I guess in day-to-day life some of those small interactions that you have with the, the brister at the coffee shop things like that for a lot for a lot of people that's that's really really important I mean I think for me it's important I, I sort of um one of my staff members has pointed out that I, I choose my coffee not based on how good the coffee tastes but who I get to see at the coffee shop I still think the coffee tastes good but you know my, my taste and other people's taste anyway I'm, I think I'm, I'm wired sort of a bit relationally in that sense and so I did notice, I guess I noticed more loneliness during lockdown. And I think the other thing that we've seen sort of almost as a result of the lockdowns is that there's been a lot of shifting of people around Australia. So, so the Blue Mountains had a lot of people move up from Sydney. A lot of people have moved to the South Coast, the North Coast. So a lot of the holiday sort of destinations where many of the people living in Katoomba are hospitality retail workers who, you know, they love their jobs, but it's not, you don't usually get, paid a lot of money to work in hospitality and retail and and we're starting to see people sort of dislocated because because the houses are being bought up by people having tree changes and and moving out of sydney and there just aren't enough houses left for people to rent and so they're having to move somewhere but they don't really have a an obvious place to move to because because their work you know they were working in katoomba in a sense they could go and live anywhere further away from a capital city but they don't really have reasons to go further away except that they can't they can't say where they are and i think that then contributes to loneliness as well because it's just people being forced to relocate and um, i guess that's i don't know that's been something that's been really on my mind sort of and, and seeing that as it unfolds around yeah. me um the retail hospitality industry i guess is feels like my industry because I've, I've worked in bookshops now for 20 years and i've and, and I buy coffee. So, but I also you know, get to, because, because I have a little shop in Katoomba Street, I get to know the other people that are running shops. And I think, you know, the, the one way to often make sure you get paid even less working in retail is to own the business. I think you, sometimes that's the, that's a guarantee way to, to earn less in retail. But, and I say that a little bit in jest because it's not, I mean, people aren't complaining. I think retail hospitality workers, they do love what they do. They love people. That's usually why they work in retail hospitality. You get, you grow used to working weekends. And so get used to having, having weekdays off instead. And, and it is like a whole, I think in a way it is a lifestyle thing or it becomes a lifestyle thing, but yeah, definitely the lockdowns have really, they've stretched people. They've stretched local business owners a lot. I've seen relationships break down. Yeah. There's just been a lot of pressure on people. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. It's, it's just it has been hard, and I, and I get and and I know yeah. that that's that's probably new to us in the West in some ways. Like we've lived a bit of yeah, life life has been a bit of an oasis in the West in, for for many for many of us. So it feels like that whole first world complaint thing, but but at the same time, it's real. Like it's not. This is a no, these are real, real changes for people, and they're real shocks. Yeah. And and particularly if you have to move town, and if you've got kids, and you're having to pull them out of schools. To, yeah. to live somewhere else like it's not these are not small tr- trivial things for people yeah so. what do you reckon is going to be 
or is uh, a solution to that or you know at least a, a direction towards a solution for that i don't think i can answer this without getting a little bit political but we have had programs of government funded social housing in the past i think after world war ii in australia there was a, a strong um, investment in in government housing and i think i think we probably just have to look at different policies for housing there are different approaches in other countries so in parts of asia where there's much more higher population density they have policies around housing and house ownership that are quite different to australia if we look at europe there are different government policies for providing um, more stability for people renting in europe so i don't i don't don't want to sort of say this is the i don't know what the correct policy for australia should be but i think if we if we if we want to encourage families to be to be able to you know be long-term in a community and raise their kids in a community with long-term friendships, then then as a society, somehow we've got to be able to make it easier for people to, to sort of pick a town and, and stay there. And I think some of that will require changes to government policy. But I, I know that's hard. We don't really have any control <laughs> over the government policy. To, you know, obviously, you know, there's certain things we can do and there's voting and all that kind of stuff. But as a church, as church communities, I, I think the things that you've raised are things we need to think creatively about and sacrificially about. Like how many of us are actually thinking of opening up our homes to others and opening up our time? Yeah, I mean, just that that whole loneliness thing is something that churches actually do have the resources in people and even place to to help with. I think it's something we need to be thinking very creatively and prayerfully about. Definitely, yeah, opening up a house and taking in a border or somebody, you know, there's different ways to do that. It doesn't doesn't have to mean taking someone in for free. It can, but it, it could just be that I think some of the people in this area, it's not that they can't afford to rent, they just can't find somewhere to rent. So, yeah. so if they could yeah. rent a room, they would. The interesting thing was there's a book about um, gospel patronage from like the sort of looking at people that helped they made it possible for the Bible to be translated into English and things like that, like or, or for George Whitfield to travel around. And one of the interesting things I discovered in reading that book was that in there were times where the way that people, people, Christians with wealth were able to support other Christians and other people, sort of, I think this was back in the 1800s and sort of that era, um, was often actually by making space available. So giving people somewhere to live rather than giving them money. So they're sort of, you know, they're giving them board. And that was that was interesting because it was a it was a book written to try and encourage people to be generous with their money, but it was interesting going back and reading those stories and realizing that at that at that time it wasn't even actually mostly about the money. It was about just making sure someone had somewhere to live while they could translate the Bible, mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, I think yeah, definitely thinking creatively, like it's working probably working out what the needs are, and and yeah, make time for people to find out what the needs are as well because because sometimes it's yeah. it's not obvious to it. To, like you don't you don't necessarily see easily see what somebody's needs are. It's it, mm. it can take time to to find that out too. Yeah, I, and I I think you know it's it's the curse of being in the Western world. We become so independent and so self sufficient that we forget to look out for other people. And you know, being sacrificial is is a foreign thing to us because we haven't needed to because life has been easy enough to be able to be so self sufficient. And and I think we saw in the early days of COVID some great initiatives of people reaching out to community and helping them. But certainly in my experience, it seems to have kind of faded into this, you know, more comfortable position where we don't have to 
really reach out to our neighbors and and as Christians, I reckon we've got an obligation to care well for the people around us and be creative and be sacrificial in what we do. And I say this to myself <laughs> because it's easy to say it, but to do it is it, it requires a lot. It requires time. It requires thought and prayer and sacrifice of, of you know, relationships and emotional investment and financial sacrifice and, so, and all those things. That'd be wonderful. The church could actually lead in that way because we have this such a bad rap in the world and to be able to show them that actually, you know, these are our roots. This is who we are. And to share the gospel with others in that way would just be awesome. What would you say is keeping you firm and growing in Christ? So to segue a little bit, I think friendship is part of it. I think I've, I've had some good friends around me during this period and, and some that I've had that I've sort of, I think I had, not taken for granted, but it's it's when when the crisis hits that you find yourself ringing friends from years ago that you've kind of kept in touch with over the years. But there are just I think there's something to be said about long term friendship. I think I think even if you're not able to stay, I've moved around a lot. So so some of my oldest friends I, I don't live anywhere near them anymore because I've lived in lots of different parts of New South Wales. But but there have been people that I've been ringing up or messaging, and and they message me late at night, and um, and I think that's been it's been really helpful. I also I listen to I listen to music, and I I like I really like I guess you call them like the singer songwriters, um, and they're sort of the Christian singer songwriters. People like um, Sour Groves, Andrew Peterson, Josh Garrels. Uh, they're not they're not songs that you can necessarily easily sing in church. They're not sing along songs. They're more sit and listen. But I think those writers are like they're very poetic, and they write beautiful lyrics, and they. And they don't shy away from lament or sorrow. You know, they'll, they'll dive straight into it, as I think poets often do. <laughs> I, I really like Andrew Peterson's song, in the, in the Night My Hope Lives On, and worth even just looking up the lyrics or maybe listen to it. I, I don't know. I'm going to say if people listen to it, it's worth it. But it just it goes through um, examples of how people were at this point where they thought that it was almost impossible situation and then God stepped in and, and and help them and and ultimately you know the towards the end of the song it's you know it talks about jesus dying you know it says they you know they, they didn't take his life he laid it down but even even then that you know the, the chains couldn't the chains of death couldn't bind him like he, he he rose from the dead and so it's this beautiful song that yeah helps helps me look for hope even when things feel hopeless i guess <laughs> yeah andrew peterson is a very talented man have you come across the Wing Feather series? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, my, my eldest daughter is reading that series now. I, I read it a few, few years back, but yeah, he's a, he's a wonderful writer. So I first came across him when I came across Sam Smith. So S.D. Smith, who wrote The Green Ember. And so before he, well, he was writing The Green Ember when I met him and, and we were chatting about book writing and it was when I published my children's novel. And yeah, he introduced me to Andrew Peterson and his work. And that's how I came across it for the, the first time. And wow, very talented, that whole crowd. Yes. <laughs> What's your favorite Bible verse? Yeah, so it's um, from the Proverbs. That's Proverbs 30, verse 5, 5 to 9. It says, every word of God is flawless. He's a shield to those who take refuge in him. 
Do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. That is definitely a good one to have as a favorite Bible verse. <laughs> Do you want to unpack it for us? Yeah, I think um, it reminds me that, again, the trustworthiness of God. So we've talked a lot about anxiety. I think it's just remembering that the word of God is flawless. We can trust him. But also, particularly, I love that, you know, this reminder that, like, what, what we need is our daily bread. It's just we, we don't need riches, but God will still provide what, what we do need. So it's just that, I guess, in a sense, it's about contentment. And in a sense, it's a prayer that it's a desire for contentment. It's saying, don't give me too much, don't give me too little, just, just give me what I need, I think, would be how to unpack it. And I guess that's, I, I want that to be my prayer to God and say, just give me what I need and give me peace and contentment in that. And I, again, through, through the last couple of years, it's, it's not been an easy couple of years for us uh, as a family because you know, most of our, our, our daily bread, I guess, seemed like it was coming from selling books at events. And then all of a sudden there were no events. And so, so that changed a lot of things. But yeah, I think this verse is a reminder that that's, we don't need everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, just an encouragement to, to live a simple life, I think. And your online sales, have they... Have they picked up in this time? They have. We did a lot of work on the website when, when lockdown hit. I, Because I'd been so focused on selling books at events, that was my, my passion has always been meeting people, talking to people, having those face-to-face conversations and finding staff who could have those conversations. And so I hadn't really focused on what the website looked like or how it worked, but lockdown gave us a chance to do that. And we've had, you know, we sent, we sent out an email last year just sort of saying to people, please help, <laughs> because mm. it was around the time that, so Grow, the conference where you first, sorry, books, it was impacted by the, the one-week lockdown in Queensland. <laughs> we, I think we had lots of lockdowns, but, but you know, there was a short lockdown just before Grow last year, and it was that moment where I thought, I just don't, we sort of were holding out, holding out, thinking it's okay, like things are going to open up soon, we'll just, we'll get by until then, and I just, I think that moment, financially, but also emotionally, I was like, I, I don't know, I don't know if I can. <laughs> So, so we did ask for help, and then people, a lot of people, jumped online and bought books from us, which was wonderful. And sort of that is wonderful. Got us through That's to now. Wonderful. Yeah. And you're going to be partnering with us again with the Lydia Project this year, yes. which we're very grateful for, for the, the books that we're going to be doing with Book Club this year. And they are, I'm, I'm loving it as you're speaking about relationship because the book focus this year is very much on relationships of different kinds. So for our listeners' sake, you can get these books. Uh, all the Lydia Project books are available at thewonderingbookseller.com.au with the code Lydia15, and then you can get 15% off, which is fabulous. <laughs> I'm very excited about that. So thank you for partnering with us last year, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing hopefully lots more sales that will come through the Lydia Project for The Wondering Bookseller. It would be great. It was great chatting to you. Thank you for this time together. So it's been lovely to, yeah. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Lydia Project. We would love you to share this episode with others, whether that be by word of mouth, social media, or leaving a review on iTunes. You can find us on most platforms using the handle at TLPCWCW. 
Music is Wholesome 7 by Dave Depper and voiceover is by me, Jennifer Mary. 